You are listening to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. Our vision is to treasure Christ above all else and live for more. So we uh, will be wrapping up uh, the book of James today. Um, and uh, it's, been, it's been a great time uh, in the book of James. And as you guys have, uh, have kind of seen, uh, the book of James is highly practical, right? Um, it's, uh, it's been a great book. Uh, you learn a lot of, especially James kind of highlights, uh, in light of Christ, this is how we live. This is uh, who we are. Uh, and this is how we actually live a life that's actually worthy of the gospel. Uh, and that's not to say that James is unconcerned with uh, I guess like deeper meaning of the why, why we do these things. Uh, he is concerned. He's just, he just talks about it in a different way than, uh, than say Paul or Peter or, or John would. And, uh, and uh, we've, we've talked about this. A lot of scholars, they kind of look at, uh, at James as is, is very similar. It's almost like wisdom literature. It's very proverbial, right? Uh, where sometimes uh, James can jump from thing to thing uh, and uh, a little bit like... Um, well, okay, so when I was younger, I don't know if you guys know this about me, but uh, I was diagnosed with ADHD, right? So I had a hard time focusing on stuff. And so like the mantra of my childhood was uh, people just telling me, Lucas, focus, right? And sometimes it feels like that with James, where it's just like, James, focus, right? Just give us something, right? Quit jumping around so much. And we'll see that today. Uh, it's, uh, it's almost, uh, today's passage is almost one of the worst offenders. Uh, and we'll, uh, we'll actually look at that, uh, where he, yeah, he'll, he'll talk about enduring. And then I'll just like, oh yeah, don't make vows. And you're like, oh, okay. And then, and then he jumps over to uh, also pray. You're like, oh, okay, yeah, right. But with wisdom literature, with kind of this proverbial style, uh, it does feel a bit disjointed or, or, or kind of like it's jumping around. However, uh, what we need to understand is a lot of times there's an overarching theme that binds the elements together that seem disjointed, but they're bound together by an overarching theme. And, uh, and that's what we're going to be looking at today uh, in the book of James. Uh, however, <clears throat> uh, this overarching theme uh, is... Uh, this idea of uh, how do we now live in light of Christ's second coming? So how do we live in light of, of Christ's second coming? And that's the overarching theme. Um, so once we're done with James, uh, next week, we're going to start that Christmas series that Ovi was talking about. And if you know anything about Advent, uh, Advent is uh, it's that time of the, uh, of the year. Uh, it's on the Christian calendar where, uh, where we really take time as a church or as a collective whole, to really just reflect on, uh, on Christ's uh, appearance. That's Advent, appearance, or coming. And so Christ came, and so this time of the year, we, we generally focus on his first coming, and that's like coming as a child or, or God taking on flesh. Uh, but it's perfectly appropriate for us to also focus during this time to, uh, to actually look at Christ's second coming. So yes, we're ending the book of James, but also in kind of this unique way, we're, we're kind of starting, we're going we're gonna to focus on this concept of Advent. And again, this, this overarching theme, it just kind of worked out this way that, that James ends his book. He ends this idea of focus on your life in light of Christ's second coming. And that's where we find ourselves now is in this Advent series is focusing on our life in light of Christ's coming. So you can almost look at this as the end of James and the start of a Christmas series all at one time. And, uh, and so as we look at this, as we unpack uh, this verse, 
I want us to keep that in mind. And that's going to be the main concept is that in light of Christ's second coming, we live a certain way. So what I'd like to do is, uh, is just go ahead and read through, uh, through this passage. Uh, and then I'll, uh, I'll give you all four points that we're gonna be working through today. And then we'll, uh, we'll go ahead and pray. So James uh, 5, 7, it says, Therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brothers and sisters, against one another, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brothers and sisters, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. But above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or with any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you do not fall under judgment. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He is to sing praises. Is anyone sick among you? Then you must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person, when it is brought about, can accomplish much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again, and the sky poured rain, and the earth produced its fruit. My brothers and sisters, if anyone among you uh, strays from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. So the point that we're going to be focusing on, uh, or the, uh, the four main ideas, is again this idea of in light of Christ's second coming, we are to endure with patience, speak honestly, pray earnestly, and protect one another. And again, that's endure with patience, speak honestly, pray earnestly, and protect one another. Let's pray. Dear God, I just, uh, I just thank you for this time that we have together. And, uh, and I just thank you for, uh, for this season of the year that, that we, uh, we can just collectively take time to, um, to just focus our hearts on you and what it is to, to live in light of, um, of your return and also uh, just focus on what it means uh, that God takes on flesh uh, and dwells among us. And, uh, and I just thank you for this community and uh, just the desire for us to, uh, to collectively uh, grow, grow nearer to you as we, uh, as we grow nearer to each other. And I, uh, I ask that you just give us wisdom and, uh, and just give us patience as we, uh, as we navigate through and we, we learn what you have for us.
Um, and, uh, and again, just wisdom to understand uh, what you're trying to communicate to your church today. And uh, in Jesus' name, I ask all of these things. Amen. So this, uh, this idea of, um, of living in light of Christ's second coming is, uh, is an interesting one because I, I think, and James even talks about this, this idea that Christ is near or the judge is at the door. This is this idea of uh, the judge is about to start session, right? He's at the door, he's about to enter his courtroom. And, uh, and when that happens, that's, uh, we kind of uh, eschatologically or from the end times perspective, we know that as, uh, as kind of game over, right? That's, that's the end of time. And, uh, and so when James talks about how the judge is right at the door or Christ is near, uh, we are living in light of, uh, it's, it, it's kind of the, um, the ninth hour. Uh, and so we, uh, we're, we're kind of in that space, uh, but I think there's a natural human tendency for us to think, oh, okay, everything's gonna be shut down. What more do I need to do, right? There's almost this temptation to just twiddle our thumbs or wait. And that was the perspective of the Thessalonians. That's, that's what Paul was largely dealing with in the in first and second Thessalonian uh, letters. Uh, but, uh, but James, he, he actually uh, kind of gives us the opposite, right? It's fight that temptation, fight the temptation to just wait uh, because if Christ is coming, we now have more work to do. Uh, that actually puts more impetus on what we're doing. It actually motivates us to do the work that Christ has given to us. Uh, Martin Luther, he had this uh, saying of, if I knew for a fact that Christ was coming tomorrow, I would plant an apple tree today. And the, the implication of that is obviously apple trees, it takes years for them to grow, uh, for them to actually start producing fruit. And even when they start producing fruit, they do that regrettably for years. And so why, why would we do that? Why would we do some, uh, something that seems so fruitless now if we knew that it was all going to end tomorrow? And the, the implication is if the master is coming back, he should find the servants working diligently uh, with the work that's been given to them. And this, this is kind of this idea that James is going to highlight throughout this passage is that in light of Christ's second coming, in light of the fact that Christ is coming and it's imminent, he's here, he's near, the judge is at the door. If it's so imminent, we should be living a certain way. And that's the common theme that's going to bind all these, uh, all these elements together. But it doesn't just bind these elements, it also binds the element uh, that, w- that just went uh, previous. So let's, uh, let's read that first uh, section of the passage again. And it says, therefore, let's stop there. All right, therefore, and I've said this before and, uh, and I'll, I'll kind of keep going with this. We'd, we'd say this in seminary. If we ever find a therefore, we should ask ourselves what it's there for, right? And so uh, it starts with a therefore. And what James is doing is he's connecting this idea to what we talked about last week. And last week, uh, that was, uh, it's definitely a unique passage. Uh, it's, uh, it definitely stands out from the rest of James. Uh, if you guys remember, Ovi was talking about how uh, throughout the entire book of James, it's just brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters, brothers and sisters. He's talking to the community of believers. He's talking to Christians. Uh, and then it gets to that passage. It gets to chapter five. And James is like, I'm, I'm just going to talk to, uh, to people that live in, uh, in kind of exuberance or excess of wealth. And he casts judgment or he declares judgment over the people that, uh, that are living in excess. And it's this really unique passage because it, it just really begs a question, why? Why would, why would James put this in there? 
like Ovi said, it, they're not in the church. So why, they're not going to even hear the judgment that's declared over them. They, they don't even have the opportunity for, the, to, for them to repent. In fact, there's really even no call to repentance at all. It's just simply that uh, the people that actually uh, live in excess, the people that have too much, uh, they oppress the poor and they will get uh, the, uh, the fruit of, of that labor. So uh, it, it's, it's very, uh, it just seems a little disjunct. It seems a little disjointed in that James is talking to Christians and then he suddenly talks about the rich and how it will consume them in the end. And again, it just begs this question, why would you James put that in there? And we actually find out why right here. And Ovi talked about this last week. The reason why that's in there is because of this, therefore, And James goes on and he says, therefore, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. This this is why he put that in there is because the implication is that people that were living in excess, the people that were oppressing the poor, the people that were taking advantage of all these people, they were not the brothers and sisters. They were not members of the church, which for us today, that should cause us a little bit of pause, right? Right? There's a little bit of judgment kind of uh, cast on us is because the assumption in James' mind is the people that do that are not members of the church. But that's a whole nother sermon. We don't have to get into all that. And so, but the implication is that it's the rich that are oppressing the actual people of God. It's the, it's the people of God that are the ones that are oppressed. It's the people of God that are reaping uh, all the uh, all the injustice uh, that is kind of given out by the, uh, the rich in society. And so how does James encourage them? How does James address this? He says, be patient, brothers and sisters, until the coming of the Lord. This is also this interesting idea uh, is that patience, we all view patience as a virtue. Patience is a good thing. Uh, but the way he words this seems interesting. It's almost as if patience is a temporary virtue. Patience, it's, it's, it's this good thing, but we don't have it forever, right? If you think about that, it's, it's like, what, what, so, why it's a, so patience is a good thing, but it's temporary. I thought everything temporal was bad. Not necessarily. What happens is when we actually get Christ, when we actually are translated into eternity, uh, when all of eternity has culminated, the object of our patience, what we've been waiting for, what we've been enduring has gone away. And now we actually have our Christ and our Lord in the way that we were meant to always interact with him. And so James goes on and says, until the coming of the Lord, uh, and then he gives an example, the farmer waits for the produce, the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient, strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain brothers and sisters against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now this is this uh, this interesting concept, uh, and this is uh, and and the first point. Just to remind you, was in light of Christ's second coming, we are to endure with patience. And I think often we look at endurance and patience as kind of synonymous with each other. Uh, so it seems a bit redundant to say endure with patience, uh, but they are very different things, right? And if you have kids, you know exactly what I mean, right? 
that you can, you can endure something uh, with, uh, with impatience and it can be agonizing and you can make everyone else's life miserable, right? Uh, like uh, Danny, if you guys know uh, my, not my littlest anymore, but he's, uh, he, I'd say about 90% of his life is spent in a costume, right? He just, he loves being something else. Um, and so the, uh, there's, there's multiple times throughout the day where he has to endure one of the most agonizing experiences in his life. And that's getting a diaper changed, not because of the diaper change, but because he temporarily for a moment, maybe a minute, he has to not be in a costume. That's, that's the thing that just, that just inflicts him uh, with so, so, much, uh, so much angst. And so he endures those moments, namely because he has to, but he's not, he doesn't do it in patience, right? And that's, that's what, what, what James is getting at is this idea of endure with patience. But why patience? Why can't we just endure? Why can't we just go through the thing and just complain our way through it? And then we get to the end and we're like, okay, God has now uh, just redeemed us. But the patience aspect, and James says this very clearly, uh, is to you to be patient, strengthen your hearts. This does something to us. This is transformative in our lives. Where yes, enduring something, uh, it, uh, that is good and that also causes a certain amount of strength, but, uh, but doing that in patience, that's a different level. That's something new that does something to our hearts. And again, we can do this uh, more, uh, more accurately and we can do this with the right lens as long as we understand that again, the Lord is near. This is the connecting point between uh, we're, we're oppressed by the rich, but be patient, endure it, endure it with patience because it's not forever. We don't have to endure it forever. Christ is coming, he's near. And then James makes this turn and he says, don't complain brothers and sisters against one another so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. This is, uh, this is this really interesting uh, kind of uh, the word that James, uh, the words that James uses here, uh, are, they're, they're very descriptive. He says, do not complain. This idea of complaining, it's actually the same Greek word uh, as the Greek Old Testament. So a uh, little aside, um, a lot of the, uh, uh, the New Testament writers, they were quoting the Greek Old Testament. It's something called the Septuagint. Right? So when they translated the Old Testament from Hebrew into Greek, uh, that's often what the New Testament uh, writers were quoting was the, the Greek translation of it. And here James actually uses the same word uh, complaining uh, as, as, uh, as what happened in, uh, in the wilderness with Israel. So when, Il- when, uh, when Israel was in the wilderness and they, c- they complained or grumbled against Moses or they grumbled against God, this is the same concept or the same word that James is using here. And so he's saying, do not grumble, do not complain, brothers and sisters, against one another. He's calling the reader's mind back to the wilderness, right? And what happened as a result of that complaining, as a result of that grumbling, is that Israel fell into judgment. And so again, here he says, don't don't complain, brothers and sisters, against one another, so that you may not be judged. And the, the idea is, behold, the judge is standing right at the door. 
And now again, we have this picture of the judge is standing at the door. He's about to walk into his courtroom. He's about to start session. And imagine what happens when he walks in and someone's sitting on his seat, meeting out judgment for him. This is a terrifying concept, right? And that James is warning us. We've seen this before. We've seen Israel doing this before. And James is actually speaking to Jews, which would hit even harder. We've done this before. We've tried this. It didn't work. Like, let's focus. Behold, or, or do not complain, brothers and sisters. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. And this goes back to James 4, and we talked about this, where James talks about, uh, are there quarrels among you? Are there fights among you? And the answer is, yep, right? And there always is. It says, the, the, but the reason why is because uh, you, you, uh, uh, you, um, you want and you do not have, right? And you do not have because you do not ask, right? And then you ask, but you do not receive because you seek to spend it on your pleasures um, and uh, so on and so forth. So this is the same idea that, that the result of quarrels, the result of conflicts among us, the result of complaining among us, is this idea that we seek for something outside of ourselves. We seek for something outside of Christ. And, and we're, we're so desperate to get these things. And as a result, we end up uh, kind of wanting power like the world wants power. And when we want that power, we end up judging other people as if we had that power. And again, we see this idea kind of played out again. I don't want to go re-preach James 4, but it's this idea that, that the only reason why we would think ourselves to be judges is because we think better of ourselves or we think more highly of ourselves. And James is again reminding us uh, that the judge is standing at the door. So the next part of this, he says, as an example, brothers and sisters, suffering and patience um, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You, ha- uh, you have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and mercy. This, uh, this is uh, a really interesting, because we, uh, we do, we all recognize uh, the prophets, right? Um, and this isn't to say that, uh, that the prophets did it perfectly, right? Uh, of course, they, uh, there were moments where uh, maybe they complained uh, or they lost sight of what they were doing. And I think we all would too. Uh, let's take Elijah, for example. Elijah comes up later, so he's a good example. Uh, but there was a moment in which Elijah kind of threw in the towel. He was giving up because, and he was telling God, I'm the only Jew in Israel that's, that hasn't bound out to other gods. I'm the only Jew in Israel that's actually uh, stayed true to you. I'm, I'm, I'm losing this fight. And, uh, and so he, he almost complains to God, but God then restores him. He explains to him, no, 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 you're doing something. You are accomplishing something. So we, we do, we need to take them as an example. Were they perfect? No. Was God merciful? Yes. That's the point. Is yes, they are the example, right? Of people that suffered in patience, but the result is that God was still full of compassion and mercy. And they were, they were strengthened because of that. We take Jeremiah, for example, right? Jeremiah, basically at the start of his ministry, God told him, Jeremiah, I got a job for you. He's like, awesome, I'm in. And, uh, and God's like, oh, by the way, you're gonna preach your whole life. You're gonna preach this message and no one's gonna believe you. And your whole ministry is gonna be unsuccessful for your whole life. And he's like, oh, 
<laughs> wait. And, and, and so, but but we, we get this feeling, right? You, you kind of, you have this, this, this depressing uh, uh, job that's given to Jeremiah where it's, you're going to spend your whole life trying to do something and you won't be successful in the least. And, uh, and so, and we even see Jeremiah, he writes the book of Lamentations where he just, he's, he's just grieved by the fact that he just, he's not successful. This message isn't hitting and nothing is really producing any fruit. And yet he still endured and he endured patiently. Did he do it perfectly? Probably not, right? But he still endured and he still endured with patience. And James says, and we look at those people, we look at them as blessed. So too with us, where we endure in patience, we endure suffering with patience. And that's only to our benefit. And God only uses that to strengthen our hearts and to draw us closer to him. It was often said of the early church, uh, this, uh, this actually comes from extra biblical writings, uh, is, uh, is kind of unsaved people uh, around the time of the early church. Uh, they actually would write to each other and they would say, uh, how do we know which ones are Christians? And, and, uh, and they would say, well, you actually know if they're a Christian because they suffer better. Uh, they just tend to suffer better. And why is that? It's because they knew that in light of Christ, that the judge was at the door. And this, this is what was in the prophets. They knew that something better was coming and that was in the forefront of their minds. And James is calling us, calling our attention to the prophets. He's calling our attention to them in the same way we too should live in light of Christ's second coming. And that allows us, that motivates us to endure with patience. The, uh, the, next, uh, uh, the next point that we are going to be talking about is uh, in light of Christ's second coming, we are to speak with honesty. Speak with honesty. And again, this is, uh, this is actually one of the first moments uh, where it feels like James can't focus on a topic, right? Uh, he's got to like distract himself with something else. So he, he talks about Job, he talks about uh, the, the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Uh, he is full of compassion and mercy. Um, but above all, uh, brothers and sisters, don't swear by heaven or earth. And you're like, oh, uh, uh, okay. So, but what, what's interesting is uh, this above all is kind of this idea of finally, right? And this, this is actually the reason why we can actually connect uh, the previous passage with what he's going to talk about next. So he's talking about don't swear oaths, and then he talks about praying earnestly, uh, and then he talks about restoring uh, brothers and sisters. And so these three things are connected to this idea of in light of Christ's second coming, because he says, finally, or uh, in order that, or uh, above all else, this idea above all, uh, but above all brothers and sisters, do not swear either by heaven or by earth or by any other oath, but your yes is to be yes and your no, no, so that you do not fall under judgment. So again, this, uh, this sentence, it's just, or this, uh, this verse rather, this verse just kind of stands uh, all on its own, right? It doesn't necessarily connect with, uh, with the thing before or the thing after. Uh, it just seems to be this, uh, this island of a passage. And, uh, and it, is, it is interesting um, 
why would it be so important from Jane's perspective to not swear an oath? Uh, that's a great question. Um, he's, uh, he's actually quoting his big brother uh, in, uh, in Matthew 5, and we're actually going to look at that passage. I want us to, to look at that real quick. So Matthew 5, if you don't know anything about Matthew 5, uh, this is the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, Jesus basically just got done going through all these laws that the Jews had understood, right? Uh, don't murder. He said, you've heard, uh, don't murder. Uh, good for you, right? You didn't kill anybody. But I'm telling you, I'm changing the law, almost asserting his deity or something, that, uh, that I'm telling you that if you are angry with someone, you've committed murder in your heart. You've heard, don't commit adultery, good for you. But if you lust after a woman, you've already committed adultery in your heart. And what, what Jesus is doing in kind of uh, deepening the law is he's, he's basically communicating to people, namely, uh, especially the Pharisees who thought that they were doing pretty good with the law. What the whole Sermon on the Mount is, is this idea of, cool, you follow the law, but you don't even realize that you're playing with Nerf darts. You wanna play with live ammo? This is the real game, Right? And, and it hits hard. It, it, people start realizing, wait, 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 I, I can't be perfect. And that's the point, right? And so then uh, Jesus gets to this passage, which is Matthew 5. He says, again, you have heard that the, that the ancients were told, you shall not make false vows, but shall fulfill your vows to the Lord. It's a good thing. He says, but I say to you, Take no oath at all, either by heaven, for it's the throne of God, nor by earth, for it's the footstool of, uh, uh, of his feet, nor by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king, nor shall you take an oath by your head, for you cannot make a single hair white or black, but make sure your statement is yes, yes, or no, no. Anything beyond that is of evil origin." And again, what's, what's kind of the, the real issue? What's the heart of the issue? What's Jesus trying to, uh, to drive at? What's, what's he trying to expose in our lives? Is this idea that uh, you make a vow, right? You, you assert the truthfulness of your statement by something that's greater than you, right? And, uh, and God does this. He makes vows, but there's nothing greater than him. So he just swears by himself. And, uh, and that's good for him, right? He can do that. You can't. And the implication, and Jesus kind of explains why he can do this is because uh, you swear by heaven, that's greater than you, but you don't control heaven. That's God's throne room. Okay, or you swear by earth. Well, you don't control that either. That's his footrest. Well, you can swear by Jerusalem, but that's not even your city. That belongs to God too. Can you swear by your head? No, you actually can't even control your hair, right? You can't determine whether it's white or black or if you can even grow hair on your head at all in the case of some of us. So there, there is what he's getting at is there is, <laughs> I'm sorry, I didn't mean to. <laughs> I just realized, okay, never mind. I'm going to stop. <laughs> the implication is uh, we have no control over the things that we actually make the vows uh, against. So what if maybe the real Im implication is you shouldn't have to vow at all. What if you were just so consumed with the truth? What if we were just so interested in, uh, in communicating truth that we had no need for falsehoods? 
what do falsehoods get us? What do we actually gain from falsehoods? And that's something. We generally are looking for something. We're looking to deceive somebody or weasel our way into something or out of something. But in light of Christ, in light of the fact that Christ is coming back, in light of the Christ, uh, in light of Christ uh, being near or the judge is at the door, we have no need for falsehood. Therefore, no need to validate the truthfulness of our statements. Everything should be true. And we should be living and speaking honestly with each other. Again, in light of Christ's second coming, we are to speak with honesty. Again, imagine the judge is at the door and he walks in and we have falsehoods being already thrown around. In light of Christ's second coming, we are to speak with honesty. The next point is in light of Christ's second coming, we are to pray earnestly. We are to pray earnestly. Uh, so we'll, uh, we'll just move on to, uh, to the next passage and that's in 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Then he must pray. Is anyone cheerful? He has to sing praises. Is anyone among you sick? Then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him, anointing him with oil uh, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This is, uh, again, uh, it seems like he's jumping around, but again, this, this changes things when we understand that the overarching theme is that in light of Christ's second coming, we are to pray earnestly. And so James is, he's, he's kind of uh, just picking everybody, right? Uh, are you suffering? Pray. Are you happy? Pray. Are you sick? Get someone else to pray for you, right? There's, there's always this result of, of just praying, praying always. Uh, and if you're suffering, if you're going through a hard time, if you're struggling in life, you should be praying to God. And if you're having a great time and everything's going your way, awesome, sing to God. That's this idea of, of, uh, of praising him or singing praises. It's, a, it's the Greek word, uh, um, uh, psalmos, right? which we get psalms from, if you guys didn't pick up on that. So that's, that's where we get psalms from. And it's this idea of we're actually singing praises. We're actually praising God in prayer, right? We're, we're actually praising God or singing to God. So again, pray. If you're cheerful, sing praises, sing your prayers. And if anyone among you is sick, then he must call for the elders of the church and they are to pray over him. There is this idea that, uh, that uh, and this is throughout the entirety of the Old Testament, and it's also kind of implicit um, uh, in this passage as well, but it's this idea that uh, if you're sick, you pray for yourself, right? Uh, you pray for healing, but what happens if that doesn't work? Uh, ask for intercession, right? We ask for people uh, it, within the church or within the community that have more faith, and we ask them, please intercede on my behalf. And so we're seeking intercession and that's what's happening is the elders are, uh, are called to actually intercede on behalf of the sick. Uh, there's also a large implication that, uh, uh, that the person is actually, they're, uh, they're laying hands on this individual, uh, which would indicate that they would have to kind of be laid up or uh, uh, on a bed in order for that to happen. It's, I don't want to get too far into the weeds there, but um, there's this implication that if we are sick, 
uh, we get, we ask for intercession and it says anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now there's a, there's a couple different, uh, I guess, implications of this. Some churches, they look at this and they say, this is, a, uh, this is uh, kind of ordained, right? Uh, and this kind of gets into this, this discussion of uh, prescriptive and descriptive. Is, is James just describing something or is he actually prescribing something that the church must be doing? Uh, and some people do think that the church does need to be doing this. So if someone is, uh, is very sick, then the elders need to go and actually put oil on their head and then pray for them. Um, and, uh, and so there, I'll, I'll kind of pitch these ideas to you. Uh, some people view it as that way. It's, it's some kind of uh, ordained thing that elders need to be doing. Uh, and it's just a vehicle in which God happens to work out his grace, right? Um, however, the, uh, the issue with that is we don't necessarily see that uh, happening all the time in the New Testament. Uh, throughout the entirety of the New Testament, people are getting healed like left and right. And, uh, and often anointing with oil doesn't, uh, doesn't really take place. Um, so uh, that, uh, there, there are some issues with that interpretation. Another interpretation is that uh, uh, anointing with oil was actually a medicinal practice, right? Uh, and I know all you essential oil people just got really excited, right? So, <laughs> just like, oh, I broke my arm. Don't worry, I got an essential oil for that. <laughs> so it's, so there, there was some evidence of, of oils being used for medicinal purposes, right? Um, yeah, even Herod, uh, we have some extra biblical sources talking about Herod uh, actually using oil to, uh, to heal him. Uh, and uh, there's other sources as well. But uh, this, uh, this was a common practice. However, the issue is it seems like the, uh, the elders are the ones that are administering medication. Um, and uh, yeah, I'll just, I'll, I'll speak for Ovi and me. I don't think we need to be a part of that, right? Like we, we don't need to administer your medication. Uh, however, the, the implication could still be there, right? Uh, where it could just be, yes, pray for healing, but don't neglect medicine, right? Like don't be that guy. So that, that could be what's, uh, what's being communicated. Um, but again, uh, we don't necessarily need elders to administer uh, uh, medication, uh, but we, we should need elders uh, for intercession, um, so the, uh, the other uh, implication, this kind of seems to fit the context uh, a little bit better, is anointing with oil. Uh, this is the same kind of anointing. There was a couple different words that they use for anointing. This is the same kind of anointing, again, that they use in the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the Greek Old Testament. Uh, this is the same kind of anointing that they would do for priests. So when priests came of age and it was time for them to actually work in the temple and actually start their priestly duties, they were anointed with oil, the same kind of word, uh, and they were consecrated or set apart to do the work of God as a priest. And this seems to fit the context a little bit better is that uh, as the elders pray over this person, they're anointing him with oil. They are consecrating this person. They are setting them aside from the rest of the church as someone with special emphasis or special attention in their prayers. They are pleading with God to set this person apart. This person is, is, uh, is, has all of our affections and our attentions and our emphasis in prayer. There's this, there's this earnest or this, uh, this drive in our prayers to, to bring this individual up collectively as a church and collectively as elders. It's almost like you're putting all your chips in, right? We all have a collective faith and we're putting our chips in on this guy. And we're, we're begging for, uh, for uh, healing. And I also want to, uh, to just make mention of this. 
And it says, and the prayer of faith will restore the one who is sick. So what do we do with this? Because we can't just gloss over this, right? It's in the scriptures. Uh, and yet we don't necessarily see this reflected uh, in reality, especially during COVID. I don't know if you guys remember, but uh, I mean, there was a lot of people that, uh, me specifically, I, I prayed fervently for. I was, I was pushing my chips in on some of these people and then they just died. What do we do with this? And I think this again goes back to James 4 where he talks about how uh, you, you have not because you ask not, and then you ask, but you don't receive because you were asking for wrong motives. And it's not that it's a bad motive to want someone to be healed. It doesn't have to be bad in order for it to be wrong in so much that it, if it doesn't reflect God's will, then it, it's just not right. It doesn't have to be bad. It's just, it's just not lining up with God's will. And here it's, uh, it's very specific. It says the prayer of faith will restore the one who's sick. A lot of people read this and they think, oh, okay, so faith is the component. I just need to kind of like plug in faith to the formula and it spits out whatever I want, right? Or often a good thing that I want, but it just doesn't line up with God's will. And then what happens? And, uh, and so faith is not this thing. And again, this puts a lot of emphasis and people read this uh, in this way where, uh, well, you're just not getting better because you don't have enough faith, okay? That puts so much emphasis on you. And uh, I, yeah, I, we just got done in, uh, in my high school class. I'm teaching them uh, hermeneutics. It's how to interpret the scriptures literally or how to interpret the scriptures accurately. And, uh, and something that you need to understand when you're reading the scriptures. And I think this is, there's a temptation for us to read the scriptures and we're trying to read ourselves into the scripture. What does this mean to me? How do I fit in this? And, uh, but it just makes a lot more sense when, we, when I recognize and I tell my students, the Bible's not about you. It's just not. You really, really want it to be, but it's not. It's about Christ. And again, here, what we're, what we're kind of dealing with is, is uh, oh, I just need enough faith and then I can X, Y, and Z. It, it's not about you. It was never about you. Faith in what? Faith in you, right? That, that doesn't do anything. And so this, this faith, uh, also, this is totally devoid of the fact that where do we get our faith? Uh, it comes from God. So God gives us the faith to pray so that God does the things that we're praying for in faith, right? So it starts and it ends with God. So we, we do need to ask ourselves, what are we praying in faith? What is this prayer of faith? And it's faith, it's believing that God is God, right? And he's going to execute his will, right? In the way that he sees fit. And this faith is still, it would still be a prayer of faith, even if he doesn't answer that prayer. If we then lose our faith, was it really ever asked for in faith? And that, that's where we get this idea of, yes, praying in faith and God answers those prayers in faith. And sometimes he answers those with a no, but that doesn't change the faith. Sometimes he answers them with a yes. And again, that only serves to strengthen the faith. So there's this idea of what, then what is prayer, right? So we ask God for things and sometimes he does and sometimes he doesn't. If he's just gonna do what he wants anyways, then why should we pray at all? 
And it really, it boils down to this fact of God created this world considering all the prayers before, you even, before he even created anything. Like consider that. Before he made anything, he thought about the prayers that you're gonna pray and he already considered and built it into creation before you ever even existed. And when I explain that to students, they always say, so what happens if I don't pray that prayer? And I said, you never did in the first place, right? And that, that's, that's the implication is that, yes, pray, pray often, pray for everything, pray with a lot of faith, push all your chips in. You can't lose anything. In the end, God's still God. And back to what, he, uh, what James said earlier, he's a Lord full of compassion and mercy. And even the way James words this is he will restore the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. This is the same language as resurrection language. And Mary even talks about this where she was weeping over Lazarus and she says, I know, I know that he'll be resurrected in the end, right? But it's still hard. And this, this is kind of this idea of, yeah, it might be hard, right? When our prayers don't get answered, but we still need to recognize that, that God, uh, in light of Christ's second coming, all of this gets resolved. All of this gets fixed. And all the sick people that we prayed for they'll be healed. God will answer that question. He just maybe didn't answer it in the affirmative right now. Okay, maybe we spent more time on that than we needed to, but. um, So uh, the next next section uh, says, and if uh, he has committed sins, they will be forgiven him. Therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about can accomplish much. Now, this is also very interesting and and, uh, this can make us a bit uncomfortable uh, because now James is connecting uh, sickness uh, and sin. And a lot of us are just like, wait, is that possible? And the answer is, yeah, (laughs) unfortunately, right? We do see this concept throughout the, uh, throughout specifically even the New Testament. It's not even like an Old Testament thing. Uh, is that sometimes a, uh, a, a sin issue can manifest in a physical illness. Uh, even in 1 Corinthians, we see that people were, uh, were getting sick and Paul even says some people have fallen asleep because they didn't take uh, communion seriously. So take that into <laughs> We're taking communion today. So <laughs> uh, <laughs> just take a deep breath. So it'll be all right. So, but there, there's, a, <laughs> there's this idea that when we sin, when we don't uh, take the things of God seriously, that can manifest in physical, uh, physical ailments. Does it always translate that way? No, sometimes we just get sick. And James just talked about Job. So we should, we should be well aware, right? Of the fact that Job endured a whole bunch of stuff and it wasn't because of a sin issue. So it's not always that way, but so why is James then telling us, uh, confess your sins so that you may be healed? Um, James is almost, if you think about it this way, it's almost preventative medicine, right? Confess your sins. Don't even give it an opportunity to manifest an illness. What if you get sick? Confess your sins anyway, you should have been doing it in the first place, right? And so this, this does beg this question, well, how do I know if my illness is a sin? Ask God right? Like, what if we just prayed about it? What if we just asked the elders to come and pray in faith? What if we just asked the community, hey, do you guys see sin in my life? Is there something going on in my life? Am I blind to something? 
It's almost like the expectation is that we church with each other. And so James says, therefore confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. A prayer of a righteous person when it is brought about can accomplish much. And then James goes into Elijah and he says, uh, Elijah was a man uh, with a nature like ours and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain and it did not rain on the earth for three years and six months. Then he prayed again and the sky uh, poured rain and the earth produced its fruit. So this is this example of this, uh, of this righteous person who prayed and accomplished much, right? And this seems like an awful prayer. God, please bring a drought over the next three years. And God's like, deal. And you were like, well, okay, why would, okay, so he answers that prayer, but he's not gonna heal like my friend uh, from COVID. So what's going on here? Uh, what Elijah is praying for is he's praying for the promises that God already gave to Israel. When Israel entered the land, God told them, you have covenant blessings or covenant curses, right? If you don't obey my law, you get covenant curses. And what are, the co- what are one of the covenant curses? It's, I'm going to withhold rain from the land. So what is Elijah asking for? Is he asking for God to just nuke Israel? No, he's, he's asking for God to keep his promises, right? Draw Israel back in. We're broken, we're lost. Draw us back in. Give us the curses that we so desperately need and deserve. And so God answers this prayer. And so this, this is kind of what James is getting at is, is when we pray in faith, we get into the mind of God and we understand what's best for us, even though it's not comfortable for us. And we start praying for those things. And that's, those are the prayers of a righteous that accomplish much is because the righteous person can see what's needed, even though it's not wanted. And those people can pray more accurately and they can accomplish much. Just like Elijah, he was able to accomplish much. He was able to see things more clearly. Of course, Elijah didn't want drought, but he knew that Israel needed it. But he also knew that God was merciful. So he prayed that God would give us rain again. And he did. And so in light of Christ's second coming, Again, we pray earnestly, we pray often, we're praying all the time, we're pushing our chips in. We pray in this faith and we try to get into the mind of God. What is God actually trying to accomplish here? And we do this, just like Martin Luther said, we, we plant that apple tree today, even though it might all end or fall apart, apart tomorrow. We do this because this is the work that God has given to us, right? The master is coming back, he should find the servants working. And this, this is what we're doing is when we pray earnestly, we pray often, we pray in faith. This was the task that was always set before us in the first place. And so in light of Christ's second coming, we are to pray earnestly. And lastly, in light of Christ's second coming, we are to protect one another. This gets into uh, to verse 19. It says, my brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from the error of his ways will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. Now, the, uh, the language here uh, does seem to indicate that, um, that this person has, uh, has kind of walked away from the church, right? Um, the, uh, the death that's been uh, avoided 
uh, seems to be a spiritual death. Uh, James says, save his soul from death, right? Uh, not necessarily saving someone's uh, physical body, uh, but, uh, but the intention is that uh, you're saving someone's soul from death and covering a multitude of sins. Now, this, uh, also this, uh, this person that has strayed away from the truth uh, seems to be someone that actually was in the church. And this raises a whole other question. <laughs> so, James says, my brothers and sisters, if someone strays, uh, if, so, if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, um, then you have saved his soul from death and covered a multitude of sins. So the one who has strayed is just someone that is among them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are saved. And we know this because in First uh, John, well, Second and Third John too, uh, is, uh, is the people that were, that were among you have now left, right? And they were never among us in the first place. Or they were, they were never from us. They acted like they were from us, but they were never of us. That's right. So there is this idea that there are people among us that aren't necessarily of us. And James is just reiterating this same concept. Is that brothers and sisters, if anyone among you strays, this person probably might not be saved in the first place. However, that only means that we have more responsibility for them. And if, if we imagine for a moment that they have been among us, they should have seen the glory of God. They should have seen the grace of God in our lives. They should have seen how we live as Christians. And that, that life that we portrayed, that we pushed out there, that they saw among us, didn't keep them Right? Aren't we responsible for them? We're the ones that had the opportunity. We had the greatest opportunity to share the gospel with them. We had the greatest opportunity to actually show Christ to these people and it didn't stick. Right? We, we, have, so much, we have so much on the line with these individuals. Now, that doesn't mean that it's your responsibility to save anybody. God does that. So we do need to recognize that sometimes there's just nothing we can do, Right? And again, it takes faith for us to just say, God's going to get to them however he wants to get to them. And sometimes he doesn't need you to do that. However, James is encouraging the believers and he's asking the brothers and sisters to also encourage other people to do this. He says uh, that if, uh, let him know that the one who has turned a sinner from error of his way will save his soul from death and cover a multitude of sin. There is some interpretive uh, discussion on this, whereas uh, uh, he will save his soul. Is that the one who strayed or the one who turned the person from straying? Is that person's soul saved and a multitude of sins are covered? Or is it the one who strayed? Is that person's soul saved and the sins are covered? Uh, grammatically, we don't really know. I think James kind of wants it that way, right? It could be both. In fact, it probably is both. Paul talks about this with, uh, with Timothy in 2 Timothy, where he says, uh, is when you guide the church accurately, when you guide the church uh, in the spirit of God, not only do you save their souls, but you also save your own. This idea is not unique to James, and it very much could be both. There is, there is a part of you that's connected with someone that you actually turn from sin, 
There's something that God does in you when you do the work of God. It's almost like a child that pretends to be like their parents, right? It's cute and it's fun. However, in that process, they're actually learning how to be an adult. And so it's in the things when we act like Christ, when we turn sinners away from sin, we're acting like Christ. And in doing so, we actually uh, kind of take on the image of Christ by doing the things of Christ. This is a part of the sanctification process is that when we do the work of Christ, we know him better. We know him more clearly. However, what does this mean in light of Christ's second coming? In light of Christ's second coming, we don't have time to play. We don't have time to wait and see. What if the judge is at the door? In light of Christ, we can't wait. And so if anyone among you strays from the truth and someone turns him back, then that person has has now accomplished the things of God. But in light of Christ, we can't just we can't just wait or we can't just wait and see. We have to, we have to help these people uh, turn from their sin. We have to help them understand their error. And so in light of Christ's second coming, we need to protect one another. Yes, protect the saints, but also protect those who are among us because we owe it to them to know Christ more fully. So in closing, I want us to, to really focus Um, really just this entire Advent season is I want us to think about uh, we're we're celebrating or we're taking time to, we're going to look at Christ as prophet, priest, and king. We're going to look at Christ when he came, when he appeared among us, when he came to earth. We're going to take time to look at this, but I also want us to keep in mind and I want us to focus on, uh, yes, Christ came, but he's coming again. And if Christ is coming again, life looks different. And the way that it looks different, please keep these four things in mind as we go throughout the rest of this Advent season is in light of Christ's second coming. We are to endure with patience, just like the prophets. We are to speak with honesty because again, the judge is at the door. Pray earnestly. It's the work that's been given to us from the the beginning and protect one another because we owe it to each other. We owe it to one another to do the work that God has given to us and to turn sinners away from their sins. Let's go ahead and pray. Thanks for tuning in to the Summit Church Garden City Podcast. We hope this teaching has encouraged you and helps you live for more.